Ortho Carolina understands pain is different for everyone, whether you suffered an injury on the field or everyday life. The orthopedic specialists at Ortho Carolina want to help you get pain free, all in one place. Same day appointments available, no referral needed, high quality and low cost MRIs with five convenient area locations, and orthopedic urgent care in Winston Salem and Kernersville. Ortho Carolina, you improved. OrthoCarolina.com. Again, that's OrthoCarolina.com. This is Twin City Talks, powered by Ortho Carolina. Here's your host, Paul Garber. Our next Twin City Talks Live looks at the question of whether or not marijuana should be legalized in North Carolina. The event scheduled for Tuesday night is sold out, but we'll be live tweeting the highlights, and you can find a wrap-up of the event on TwinCityTalks.com. Our guest today is Colin Miller, co-founder of the Twin City Harm Reduction Collective. It seeks to improve the health and lives of drug users in the community. Miller also advocates for criminal justice and treatment policy reform. Miller says attitudes about marijuana have evolved over the last several years, so we're going to talk about that change and where marijuana fits into the complicated landscape of substance abuse. Colin, thank you for being here with us. You're welcome. Why is it so hard to talk about marijuana? Um, I think that with marijuana, it's one of these drugs that um, for a lot of people that have had some experience with it, I think it's kind of not as big an issue. Um, but to a lot of people that haven't uh, really had a lot of ex- firsthand experience with marijuana, I think that they often lean on a lot of what they've seen or have been fed from popular culture, which is, you know, historically been steeped in a lot of scare tactics and not based in a lot of reality about what the effects of marijuana are. So I think that people are sometimes intimidated um, when they haven't had that firsthand experience by these sort of um, these ideas of, of sort of demonizing drugs that, you know, that we've uh, seen over the years. Okay. And do you think that perception is changing? I think it is um, on a whole big time with marijuana. I mean, if you look at the um, the studies or, or the, the polls that have been done as far as, you know, are you in favor of medical marijuana? Are you in favor of legalization? We've seen those numbers shift from, you know, pretty significant minorities being people who approve uh, back in the 80s to significant majorities now that are in, in favor of legalization. So in the past 20, 30 years, we've seen a significant movement from one side sort of saying, no, marijuana should never be legal. You know, this is a bad idea to most people saying um, we don't really think it would be a big deal to have this legalized. Um, I believe the numbers I looked at recently were around 60% of Americans in most polls think that marijuana should be legalized. And are there still some risks of using it? This is this is an interesting one because I um, I think that um, having worked in mental health and substance use disorder field for, for quite some time now and being someone with lived experience with drug use myself, um, I've never actually seen significant harms done by uh, marijuana with the exception of people who have significant mental disorders. Um, I've seen marijuana be something that could be um, potentially pretty harmful to people, especially people that are struggling with things like schizophrenia, um, bipolar disorder, things of that nature. Um, Cause I have seen it um, exacerbate or make worse some uh, 
symptoms of, of certain mental disorders. But with the exception of that sort of sliver of the population, and let me also note that that's a population that might not do well with a number of other substances, not just marijuana. So I don't think it's the marijuana <laughs> when we're talking about how it might interact with someone that has, you know, schizo paranoid schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or something like that. Well, since you brought up your experience, can we talk about that now? When how did you get involved in um, harm reduction? I understand it was quite the path to get there. Can you kind of explain how you got here? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so I started using drugs at a very young age. Um, first drugs that I started using were tobacco, um, well, nicotine and alcohol later would start, soon start smoking weed. But uh, that started for me when I was about 11 or 12 years old. Um, over the years, I got into, um, I guess, my, my drug habit or, or my issues around substance use became more and more severe and more and more detrimental to the, to the you know, to my day-to-day -day living. And uh, um, so can, can I just interrupt you there? Did you, did you start smoking weed at 11? Uh, probably like 11, 12 years old, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's fairly early compared to most users, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I grew up in the city in Minneapolis. It was pretty... Um, it was pretty, pretty plentiful, pretty around. And, and honestly, like this is an interesting thing too. I think when we talk about marijuana, I think in certain segments of society, um, and a lot of the people I grew up around, marijuana is not looked at collectively as something that's really a negative thing. Sort of, it's like, as long as you're not drinking every day and as long as it's just weed, like the ideas that I got growing up were as long as it's just weed, you know, that's, that's pretty okay. You know, most, a, a lot of adults I knew that were, you know, um, people's parents or whatever, you know, they, they were pot smokers themselves, you know, so that, so I think there's also like, you know, in certain segments of, of our society in America, marijuana is looked at as, as something that's less harmful than alcohol. And then on the other side, you have people that are looking at it as this, you know, sort of, it's an illegal drug and therefore it's just sort of bad, just generally bad. And that, you know, well, what, what I heard a lot growing up was that it's a, what they call a gateway drug to other substance abuse. Yeah. Yeah. And the gateway hypothesis, I mean, there's been, a, that's been pretty widely discredited at this point, as has um, a lot of the research that's gone into, um, you know, as, as far as like, you know, poly substance use and whether if someone has a trouble with a, with one drug, they're, uh, they're for sure going to have trouble with another drug. You know, it's interesting because we assume things like that, but really the research doesn't actually back up some of these things that are in the, I guess, collective psyche, you could say. And I, I got you a little sidetracked there. So there let's go. go back to where <laughs> your experience uh, back in Minneapolis, you're, you're, you're starting out fairly young uh, yeah. on a path of substance abuse. Yeah, yeah. And getting into harm reduction and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, so um, when I was, uh, as, as my drug use sort of changed and moved from, I guess I would say less harmful substances like marijuana to more harmful substances like cocaine and heroin, or more potentially harmful substances, um, I you know, began to use heroin when I was 18 or 19 years old intravenously. And from then it was, uh, became a really big struggle. Um, over the years, um, I would be introduced to a variety of different harm reduction outfits. And that really got me focused on, okay, maybe I can make some small changes, you know? And for me, it started with, you know, using sterile syringes instead of using ones that were used and, and things like that. But eventually I would, you know, find some sort of treatment that was effective for me and find, you know, some stability in my life. 
Okay, and I think there are a lot of people out there who don't know what harm reduction is, but in your case, mm -hmm. it was basically somebody saying, hey, we're going to help you uh, do this in the least risky way possible, if you can say that, I guess. Yes. But, but, but explain that. What, what did the harm reduction efforts that you were first introduced do, and how did they help you? Um, I think that the first thing is, is that harm reduction, um, people that worked in harm reduction were the first people that actually acknowledged me as a human on equal footing. I think oftentimes substance use disorder treatment in this country is very sort of uh, almost parental, you know, and, and, and the, the line that you often hear when you go in or when you're seeking treatment is, if I want to know how to use drugs, I'll ask you you know, or take the cotton out of your ears and stick it in your mouth, you know, and that's the common lines that you get from people. It's sort of this idea is, you know, you're a drug user, you don't know crap, you know, <laughs> let us take care of you. And uh, with harm reduction, there was a different, you know, vibe. It was sort of more empowering. Um, it was more, what do you want your life to look like? Those were the types of questions that were being posed to me. And, and I resonated with that. You know, it wasn't, it, it didn't feel abusive, like uh, substance use disorder treatment had often felt to me when I tried to seek help. Um, so with harm reduction, it was like, you know, basic information on, you know, stuff that would keep me alive while I was still using, you know, how to not contract HIV, how to not contract Hep C, how to inject correctly so I'm not getting, you know, abscesses and soft tissue infections and blood infections and things like that. Basic public health stuff that tells someone to, that takes someone five minutes to explain to another person, you know. So that's sort of how it starts. But from there, it's like once that, it, I think with harm reduction, it's more about those relationships that you build. And with syringe exchange, with naloxone distribution, with things like that, that's sort of how you're beginning to cultivate that relationship. Over time, it's like, at least for me, what it was, was I always knew that the people at Access Works in Minneapolis is where I went to get syringes most of the time. Um, and that was a syringe exchange program. And what they would, you know, what they would do is sort of when you first went in there, they would let you know that you, you know, we can help you get into detox, we can help you get into inpatient, we can help you get onto methadone, we can help you get onto suboxone, like sort of whatever your path is, but we're not going to lean on you or push you in any direction that you don't want to go. You know, when you're ready, we can help you do anything that you want to do, but we're going to wait until you're ready to do that. And at some point you were ready, right? Yeah. Yeah. At some point, at some point. And, and over the years, you know, I mean, recovery isn't something that happens, you know, just like that for most people. You know, it's something that for me, I spent many years um, very focused on abstinence being the only way and, you know, spent a lot of time around, you know, the 12 step community and sort of what you might call the traditional recovery community. And uh, still, I, I've always dabbled in harm reduction, done syringe exchange and things like that. Um, uh, but really the last few years, uh, my focus has gone much more, sort of away from the abstinence based, uh, models and more towards a, a more of a harm reduction model of, of treatment, at least in, in my own life and my own experience. So, okay. And what is that model? Um, I guess I would say that, um, abstinence is not the, the goal. Um, I think that oftentimes, um, with substance use disorder treatment, we have, we set goals for people that oftentimes they don't want to reach. You know, for many years, I didn't necessarily want to stop using drugs or I wasn't ready to stop, but I wasn't going to tell you that because what I wanted to stop was the arrests. I wanted the, the physical pain to stop. I wanted to have some sort of like generalized health care to take care of myself. 
There were a lot of things that I wanted to stop in my life that were related to drug use, but they were more related to um, the type of things that we do to try to deter people from using drugs. You know, I think we end up inflicting a lot of added um, pain on people who are already suffering with the expectation that that's going to somehow deter them or make them less likely to use drugs or to engage in certain behaviors. And if you look at statistics, we're not doing a good job. And obviously that's not a very good deterrent because we have more people dying of overdose. You know, we have, you know, we've gone from 10,000 overdoses a year back in, in most years in the nineties, um, somewhere in that neighborhood to 72,000. You know, there's more drugs available on the street. There's more people in prison than ever have been, you know, and a lot of that's because of, of uh, you know, drug laws, you know, and it's like, what do we have to show for this? You know, if, if all this criminal justice work and, and, and sort of interdiction efforts that we've been pouring billions and billions of dollars into were really effective, wouldn't we be seeing less people using drugs? Wouldn't we be seeing less drugs on the street? But we're not, you know? And, and that's what it comes down to, I guess, for me is that, you know, I think a lot of the ways that we've been trying to deal with substance, substance use and substance use disorders on a whole has been very, very ineffective. But I think that the political will, it's a scary position to, to, to you know, sort of say, um, I think marijuana should be legalized or I think we should talk about drug, drug decriminalization when you have political campaigns that have been built for decades and decades on getting tough on crime, you know, and that being sort of like the thing that we've been saying over and over and over again to, 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 to make a shift in the way that we're doing policing. I mean, that's a big that's a big move, you know, and that's something that's not just going to happen overnight. And I think people are really scared of it. So. How did you get down to this area and how was the landscape similar or different in terms of attitudes about uh, about using drugs in a safe manner? Um, I guess uh, so I came from uh, I lived in Minneapolis and then I was up in Pennsylvania for a number of years, um, mostly uh, unhoused or housing insecure. <laughs> Some might say homeless. Um, but uh, in Philadelphia, uh, I lived with my mom when she was living in Harrisburg and Hershey, Pennsylvania for a while. But long story short, I was basically, you know, um, in and out of chaotic drug use for a number of years, especially in my 20s. And just sort of uh, I had active warrants in Minneapolis. So I went to Pennsylvania and then I had warrants in Pennsylvania. So i moved to North Carolina. <laughs> so, so when I moved down here, it was basically just kind of running from charges, um, trying to get my life together, but not knowing how. Just but eventually you went to college, right? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so I really started to, to, to kind of take recovery somewhat seriously around 2010. And went back to school at Guilford College, got my degree. Um, I've been working in nonprofits here in Winston for probably about 10 years now. Um, so that started in 2009, 2010, somewhere in that neighborhood, right when I was kind of getting my life together. All right. And so needle exchange is always controversial. What was the reception here? Because wh when did you start the, the coalition? Um, so syringe exchange was something that um, myself and another gentleman who was uh, definitely one of my mentors, uh, Steve Daniels, a lot of people called him Gator. 
and, or Brother Malik. He was a member at Community Mosque over on Watown. Uh, really, really great guy. Worked at he he volunteered at the uh, free clinic that they did at Community Mosque for for a very long time. Did a lot of stuff in the community. Um, but it, uh, I actually fell in with him back in like 2013, 2014. So this was like two or three years before syringe exchange was legal in North Carolina. And so we were doing syringe exchange, um, sort of me, him, and uh, another woman who helped us start the exchange. We were all doing it, you know, illegally out of our car trunks and meeting people in parking lots and stuff. And then once uh, syringe exchange got legalized in 2016, that's when we went legit. You know, so uh, it was, I think, December of 2016 is when we finally opened our doors to the fixed site exchange and, and started like actually being able to advertise and put it out there that we are, this is what we're doing rather than doing So you got out of the parking lots, basically. Yeah, yeah, I got out of, right out of the shadows a lot. So, yeah. <laughs> and do you think that your effort saves lives? Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, with uh, this last the last calendar year that, that we just reported for um, the, the state acts that syringe exchanges do a certain uh, there's certain restrictions and certain regulations, you know, to to be a state sponsored or state sanctioned syringe exchange. Um, so during the, the calendar year last year that we just reported for, we distributed somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,500, 3,000, something like that naloxone kits last year, which resulted in the overdose reversals of 383 people that were reported. So we know for sure that our kits were used in reversing at least 383 overdoses in Winston-Salem and surrounding areas. That's probably actually a higher number because the thing is, is that everyone doesn't call us when they use their naloxone. We tell them to, we put, you know, our number on the kits that we hand out and say, if you use this kit, please call us and let us know so we can try to accurately track numbers. But, uh, I mean, that's just the number of people from the naloxone. Then there's also people that we connect with treatment. You know, um, there's people that are just generally getting more stable, you know, that might be, uh, weaning down with their drug use or using, you know, black market suboxone or methadone to sort of mitigate how much heroin they're using, things like that, you know, so, you know, we don't, again, when we're looking at success, we're looking at success as what we're looking at markers of success as is not how much drugs someone is using, we're looking at how they're living their lives. Are they being decent to the people around them? Are they not lying? Are they not stealing? Are they not, you know, those are the things that we're measuring success by, not whether or not someone is ingesting certain substances. All right. So let's then get a little bit back to the topic of marijuana. Yeah. Okay. And so um, your experience was you started using weed 11 or 12 mm -hmm. uh, along with uh, nicotine and, and, and alcohol. Do you, did do you think that played a role at all in you wanting to do harder drugs years later? No, no. And I think that um, I would I would summarize the, the, the idea of the gateway hypothesis sort of like this. If you put things in a black market, anything that is in that black market system, whether it's gambling, drugs, sex work, um, things of that nature... Um, there, you're going to be just instant. Once you're tapped into that black market, regardless of how you're getting tapped into that black market, your access to any black market substance or service is going to be increased, right? So if you put marijuana in the black market, it's going to move in the black market supply chain. And I also need to say this, the marijuana, like on a, from a black market scale, the marijuana industry and say the heroin industry or the cocaine industry, 
those drugs are coming from very different places now. Most marijuana production, even black market production, is done within the United States at this point. You know, a lot of the, the stuff that we see in the black market is coming from the Western states that have already legalized marijuana. Uh, I don't really see the point in trying to keep it out at this point. Um, we'll get into that. But um, I guess what I'm saying is that a lot of the, quote, criminal groups that are moving these substances, um, you know, when we're talking about marijuana or vape cartridges or stuff like that, you know, that are THC based products, a lot of times that's a separate sort of thing than your cocaine and your heroin. You know, you have those being moved much, by, much more by the cartels coming out of uh, South and Central America. And those cartels have largely gotten out of the marijuana game. You know, the marijuana that we saw in, in the 90s and before that was being grown in Mexico, a lot in Sinaloa, where now poppy production has, has gotten much, much more. Um, you know, I guess what I'm saying is that the, the, the cartels decided once states started uh, legalizing marijuana in the states that this was no longer going to be profitable enough. You know, the amount of marijuana that you have to sell to make $600 is a whole lot bigger than the amount of fentanyl that you'd have to sell. So from the black market perspective, as far as from the cartel perspective, it's basically we can sell something that's going to be easily to easier to conceal and much less bulky, you know, and just forget the weed. So I guess to get back to my point about the whole black market hypothesis thing, um, or sort of this idea of marijuana as a gateway drug. I think whenever anyone is, I think when you put things in a black market and you, and that's where people have to go to get that, they are automatically going to be more, po the, the possibility of them accessing other black market um, materials or services is going to be increased just because they're connecting to the black market to get something, right? Yeah, at the same time, there's always going to be a black market for marijuana because even if it's legalized, they're not going to say legal for everybody. They're going to put an age limit just like they do on alcohol and tobacco. Mm -hmm. um, so there's always going to be that black market, don't yeah. you think? So in the in a lot of the legal states, um, from what I've seen, is that there is still a black market, and it's not necessarily just for people who are underage. It's also for people who can't afford the extra taxes that are put on products and stuff like that. You know, a lot in a lot of the legal states, the price on the black market here is actually cheaper than the legal weed. Like, for instance, when I was in Nevada, and I don't mind saying it because it was a legal purchase, you know, I went to a number of dispensaries and, and, and purchased uh, various legal uh, quantities of, of marijuana and THC containing products. And, uh, you know, there a lot of that stuff was just as expensive, if not more expensive than what I could get on the black market in North Carolina. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is that price wise, there's always going to be some competition between the black market. Um, what we can do is when we do legalize marijuana, we have to think about those kinds of things and make products that are accessible enough to keep people out of the black market. And when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about price points. I'm talking about having product that is geared towards someone that doesn't have, you know, $50 or $60 to go blow, you know, on, on pot, you know, someone that might have 20 bucks to spend, you know, we need to have a, a product available for everybody. Essentially, we need a knockoff brand. Is that what <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, you, you know, you got to have the, the Air Jordans and then you also have to have the, you know, the the Etonics or the whatever the, you know, the whatever the brand is over at Walmart or whatever. You know, I mean, everybody needs to shop, right? 
And so one thing I think is complicated about pot is there are a lot of people who see that people going to jail and losing a big chunk of their lives of not being productive in their life because they've got this criminal thing hanging over them is not really working. On the other hand, they don't want to really see this as an everyday part of American life either. How do you find a balance there? I, I, I'm not sure how you would balance it, um, to, be, to be quite honest. I mean, I think that if we can say, you know, I think there's a lot of gray area between let's throw people in jail and let's uh, legalize marijuana for, for everybody. But I, I guess, I don't know. When I'm th- sitting here thinking about it, like I really don't see, I, I guess what I would ask people who have an issue with pot being everywhere in society is first I would make the statement that it already is. You know, I mean, there's on any given day, this is a normal recreational or residential neighborhood, you know, young families and stuff. And for the record, we're in West Salem. Yeah. Um, And, you know, on any given day, I can take my dogs for a walk around the neighborhood. And especially if it's after work or something, you're going to probably smell weed coming out of multiple houses or you might catch a, a whiff when you're walking through the park. I guess what I'm saying is we're talking about a drug that's used by a huge segment of the American population on a regular, you know, on a regular basis, you know, and this isn't something that we can just sort of say, like, I guess I would ask the people that that have an issue with it or don't want to see it everywhere. Why don't you want to see it everywhere? Do you have the same problem with people smoking cigarettes? Do you have the same problem with people drinking alcohol? You know, because like, I mean, when we're talking about alcohol, there's 88,000 people that die every year to alcohol-related uh, issues in in, Amer- in this country, you know, somewhere in that neighborhood. So we're talking about 88,000 people dying. Last time I checked, there were no, you know, I mean, there might be a few crashes or something, I don't know, but the numbers on marijuana-related fatalities are significantly lower, if not non-existent. Definitely non-existent in relation to actual, like, overdosing on THC because that's not something that's ever happened. There's been no medical cases that have been documented of someone dying from the over ingestion of marijuana. There's been plenty of deaths of people dying from uh, the over ingestion of alcohol, which is a legal substance, you know? So, <laughs> so, so let me just say what uh, the National Institute on Drug Abuse says marijuana addiction is difficult to quantify, but that some people suffer from marijuana use disorder, which can include dependence. Right. And so studies suggest that 9% of people who use marijuana will become dependent on it, rising to about 70% of those who start using in their teens. So, so there's, you know, there's that issue. And what I've, what I've heard people say is, yes, alcohol is probably a bigger problem and it can kill you and it's legal. Tobacco, you can get lung cancer, you can get other cancers. It's legal, but it's dangerous. So why do you want a third thing out there? I really, well, first of all, um, I don't think that marijuana is anywhere near as dangerous. And I think that honestly, when we're talking about drugs, whether it's marijuana or any other drug, the harms that we have visited upon, especially communities of color, and in general, all people that use drugs, those harms are so much more and so much greater than the harms that could potentially come, even worst case scenario that could potentially come from people just using drugs, 
You know, when we talk about the harms from drugs, we're often talking about the harms that are done by prohibition. You know, if drugs are on a black market, they are inflated ridiculously and the prices are very expensive. So when we talk about drug-related crime, we're not talking about people getting high and going committing crimes because they're high. We're talking about people that have substance use disorders often. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but often have substance use disorders or some sort of dependency on a substance, and they have to spend $200 a day obtaining that substance in the current situation that we have. And we seem to think that as long as we keep substances illegal, i.e. keep them at inflated prices and continue to lock people up behind jail, that's going to somehow deter people from using drugs. It historically has not. You know, we, we see well, that time and time again. You know, like, I know people who don't smoke pot for the sole reason that it's that it's illegal. Mm-hmm. I, I would imagine it would get more prevalent if you if you legalize. Would you agree with that or? And I don't see a problem. Pure speculation. I mean, mean, just to, you know, uh, full disclosure, and I don't mind saying it because I'm an advocate, you know, I smoke marijuana every day. I smoke marijuana throughout the day usually. Um, It's something that helps me with my opioid use disorder. Um, And it's something that, that I know a lot of other productive, normal people that you might not think are marijuana smokers are marijuana smokers. And a lot of people, it's very beneficial to their lives. And it's not something that... um, I feel like it should 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 be illegal in any sort of way, honestly, you know. Okay, well, so we had talked before, um, as, as we were setting up this interview, um, that your experience was that, you know, you're in the harm reduction uh, of drug use, and certainly opioids are a big part of that, yeah. huge part of that, yeah. because they're extraordinarily dangerous. Yeah. And in our conversation to set up this meeting, you were mentioning that you felt like that there were benefits to opioid users to be able to have marijuana as an option. Can yeah. you tell me about that? Yeah, yeah. Actually, there was a study that just came out in uh, Vancouver, and this is this was a study that was done uh, with people that were on uh, some sort of medication-assisted therapy, so either methadone or buprenorphine. Um, and this study found that, this is one that like just came out, I just read it last week. Um, this study found that, I, I think the sample size was somewhere around 400 drug users in Vancouver that were on some sort of medication assisted treatment, but they found that the the participants in treatment that were uh, regular marijuana users had a 21% a higher success rate of retention in treatment. So they stayed in treatment on, on the Suboxone or on the methadone um, at, at, at a rates of 21% higher than the general population. So I guess what I'm saying is that we're starting to see some research that shows that sort of using marijuana as some sort of replacement therapy is successful for some people. Now, let me clarify here that oftentimes I think with substance use disorder, we want sort of a one size fits all treatment. And when we're talking about something that we don't really understand fully how it even starts in the first place, we don't have, you know, there's no one treatment that we've found that's going to work for everybody. I think for every different person, we have to get we have to find the lowest least invasive treatment that's going to allow them to become stable in their lives without being too overbearing or um yeah the least intrusive treatment of available um that's also the most uh, cost effective you know and i think oftentimes we you know we tell ourselves or we have this sort of narrative in our society that everyone has has to be abstinent when in fact you know if you look at statistics and if you look at the research you know the fact is is that a lot of people simply age out of addiction most people that um were in in one study that that was a meta meta analysis that was done 
that looked at a whole lot of different studies. Um, in that study, they found that more than over 50% of people who were diagnosed in their 20s with a substance use disorder in, their stu in this study were no longer diagnosable as having a substance use disorder 10 years after that, so once they had moved into their 30s, and that only a quarter of that population in this meta-analysis, meta which again is like covering like somewhere around the neighborhood of like 60,000 people, only a quarter of those people who are not no, are, who are no longer addicted from a clinical standpoint actually sought any sort of formal treatment. And I think that these are the sort of things that we don't talk about. We don't talk about the fact that the minority is actually the type, the, 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 the minority is the person that needs to be abstinent, I think. I think the majority of people that have substance use disorder actually end up aging out of it or moving into, you know, more meaningful things in their lives, whatever. And I think oftentimes we have this, this, um, this sort of narrative where it's, you know, you have to go to treatment, the longer, the better, so on and so forth. And a lot of that stuff can be very, um, it can interrupt people's lives, you know, and, and what other, what other, uh, physical ailment or disease do we ask people to like, you know, just drop everything in their lives and go, hide out for three months to six months or a year, you know, and maybe that's what some people need. I just don't think that's what everybody needs, you know. If marijuana was to become legalized, do we need to take any steps at all along that process to to kind of mitigate the harm to society? I'm not sure what the I mean. I think that marijuana should, of course, be um, illegal to use while you operate motor vehicles, just like we do with alcohol. I think that we should, you know, teach people safe use. I mean, with harm reduction with marijuana, a lot of it is geared more towards people who are not regular users. And in a, if you're introducing a legal market, you want to teach people about how to use substances safely. And not that you know, you're going to, you know, eat too many uh, marijuana edibles and, you know, die, but you might not have a good time. It might not be very fun. It might be kind of overwhelming. So we want to teach people how to ingest certain sorts of substances when they're introduced in a, in a legal market. You know, you teach people to use them just like we talk about with, with responsible drinking. You know, I think there has to be sort of, you know, some sort of PR campaign or some sort of information that's disseminated to show people how to use in a responsible, safe way, you know, but, but, but outside of that, I really don't think so. You know, if it were up to you, just flip a switch and it'd be legal. I mean, with certain, yeah. I mean, I think that, that, that following, um, learning the rules from certain state, from states that have legalized for recreational use. I think we need to look at those states and look at what has worked, what hasn't worked, what's effective, what's not effective and learn from that and, and, and move forward accordingly. You've been listening to Twin City Talks, powered by Ortho Carolina. For links to all episodes, our blog, and more, visit TwinCityTalks.com.